Message number L11, the Holy Spirit and the Redemption of Man, was given by the very Reverend Archimandrite Eusebius Stefano, Greek Orthodox priest and founder and director of the St. Simeon the New Theologian Orthodox Renewal Center located in Destin, Florida. In the previous message entitled The Operation of the Holy Spirit in the Creation of Man, we discussed at length the scriptural truth that God created man in his image and likeness potentially. This means he was not created instantaneously. He did not come forth out of God's hand as a finished product. Endowed with freedom, man was intended to cooperate with God in a free submission to his plan. Man was to work together with God and be a co-worker with him and a co-creator, that is, a joint creator of himself. In this sense, man determines whether or not he will be created in God's image and likeness. He cannot become what God intended him to be unless he assents in obedience to the purposes of God and exercises his will in conformity with the will of the Creator. To be created in God's image and likeness means that man had to share in God's nature and glory. God's love made that provision for man. He supplied man with the capacity of sharing in the divine life in all its fullness. Creation implied growing spiritually. Growth in this dimension was possible only by being filled with the Holy Spirit. God provided man with this divine infilling, his spirit, that he infused and communicated to man was of his deeper life. But Adam, the first created man, fell short of the glory of God. He sinned. That is, he missed the mark, the goal of becoming in God's image and likeness. Rather than submit to God's will, he submitted to the temptation of Satan. He failed the test of obedience to God's commandment. In Scripture we read that God commanded Adam, and I quote from Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou shalt eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now there has been a lot of speculation on the exact meaning of this commandment. Some interpret it literally as a historical happening, while others interpret it only as only symbolic, a symbolic of a more spiritual reality. Whatever the interpretation of the initial divine commandment might be, what is of primary importance is the disobedience and the resulting penalty. Adam's transgression marked the entry of sin into the world. That is, rebellion against the will of man's creator. What is dramatic and tragic about the whole matter of the first transgression is that it brought its consequences upon all the descendants of Adam, that is, upon all the human race. We read in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, By one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And in verse 19, for by one man's disobedience, 
many were made sinners. God's warning was carried through. For in the day that thou shalt eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Adam surely did die. He suffered the penalty of death, and that death was both of soul and body. Death meant the loss of God's provision for his growth and perfection, namely the loss of the Holy Spirit. Death is separation from God's Spirit. The wages of sin is always death. To separate from the Holy Spirit is to separate from God. This separation meant that Adam was deprived of the source of the fullness of life, that is, of God's life. God's life is blessedness and infinite joy, while death is sorrow and grief. As a result of his act of disobedience, Adam forfeited his full share in the divine life. Death remained his fate. Now let us take a closer look at the penalty of death that Adam suffered. Death is separation, first, of the soul from the Holy Spirit, which in turn leads necessarily to the separation of the body from the soul. This fact is borne out in Genesis chapter 3, verse 23. The Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now, Adam suffered spiritual death first. And after living 930 years, as we are told in Scripture, he suffered physical death. The twofold death, that is, the death of the body and of the soul, is the natural consequence of man's rebellion against his Creator. God made man innocent and free from sin, destined for everlasting life. But whenever man resists God's will, the result can only be disaster. In rebelling, man is deceived in thinking that he can fulfill his need for freedom and individuality. Sinning is always self-defeating. It can never accomplish anything permanent. It inflicts untold harm on the sinner. It is destructive both of soul and body. To set our own will over and above God's will alienates us from God and dooms us to the everlasting perdition of hell. Man's banishment from paradise was not an arbitrary decision of a high-handed God. It resulted from the very nature and structure of divine existence. There is no place in the divine company for dissidence of wills. The three persons of the Holy Trinity have a common will and a common essence, a common nature. The will of the Father is the will of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They are equal in nature and in the exercise of a common volition. They will according to the nature of their essence, that is to say, according to the law of reason, according to the logos, which is rationality. They cannot violate their own nature. But Adam failed to win complete access to the glory of the triune God. He abused the gift of freedom with which he was endowed and rebelled against the divine will. Rather than yield absolutely to God's will, he set his own will above the will of his Creator. And in that very act of sedition, he was severed from an intimate relationship with God that was essential for raising him to the level of being in the image and likeness of God. 
God is holy in his rational and spiritual nature, and there is no room for self-will in the divine trinity. There is no place for unholiness in that blessed fellowship. Enmity came to take the place of intimacy and community. If we examine more closely the penalty of Adam's disobedience, we will see that it was a disobedience of the will of the Father that to the will of the Father that separated Adam from both God's logos, that is reason, and God's spirit. Adam received the logos or reason when he received the infusion of the Holy Spirit at the time of his creation. The Spirit is never without the Logos. He bears witness to the Logos whenever he is present. The fall of Adam resulted in the weakening of the presence of the Spirit and of the presence of the Logos within him. His rational powers were enfeebled. He began to violate the dictates of his reason. This is stated by St. Paul in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate, says St. Paul. The state of sin makes man go against his better judgment. The will becomes subservient to the passions. Adam lost his right to the fullness of God's spirit. This is the tragedy of all sin. The sinner is excluded from having access to the very source of his ultimate fulfillment, the Holy Spirit. Such a loss and such an exclusion produces death. The wages of sin is death. Instead of peace and joy, the sinner experiences sorrow and anguish. Instead of the immortality of his soul and body, the sinner comes under the dominion of corruption and dissolution. Man's body, as well as his soul, was originally created not to return to the earth from whence uh, they were taken, but to become spiritual and heavenly. They were both created for glory, body and soul. Adam was created to ultimately ascend into heaven after finishing the course of growth in the Holy Spirit in the very same manner that Jesus did because of his sinlessness and perfection. Jesus, the new Adam, was exempt from corruption and decomposition, but a life free from sin and death and a glorious ascension was lost to Adam. He fell under the curse of death. In the justice and holiness of God, it was only natural for him to suffer the consequences of condemnation. There was no other way. He had to pay the price of disobedience, death and damnation, which brings separation from God's life-giving spirit. Losing the Holy Spirit meant a return to the dust of the earth. Sinful man in body and soul shared with animals the process of dying and decaying. Such a tragic return to the ground marked a total reversal of God's plan and, and intention for man. God's indictment of Adam was, Dust thou art in, unto dust thou shalt return. Where God's spirit is withdrawn, there is only death that's left, and a return of the body and the soul to dust. The Bible speaks of the abode of the departed souls prior to the coming of Jesus Christ as a subterranean habitation, one beneath the earth. It is important to point out that God withdrew his spirit from man. Of course, not in the absolute sense of the word, but only in terms of full fellowship. Adam's growth in the Holy Spirit was interrupted. Sin cut short the complete infusion of the Holy Spirit. 
His share in the Holy Spirit was reduced to a bare minimum necessary for mere existence and even restoration. This bare minimum consisted of the endowment of reason and free will. But even this vestigial endowment was infected by sin and perverted under the dominion of Satan. Man lost his complete freedom by surrendering it to Satan. Rather than become a son of God, he came under the bondage of Satan and became what the Bible calls a child of wrath. Thus, Adam's separation from God in the Holy Spirit was not one of, to an absolute degree, one that occurred to an absolute degree. If the separation were to have been total, man would have ceased to even exist. He would pass from existence into extinction, since the Holy Spirit is the very source of life. He is the entifying principle in the creation and the sustaining of the world. The Holy Spirit, in his animating function, remained in Adam to a measure necessary to keep Adam and his descendants under conviction of sin and mindful of their true origin and their inner need for redemption. What was totally lost was the perfecting and the sanctifying spirit that man needed to attain his end. He was incapable of becoming a temple and abode of God's Holy Spirit because of the fall of Adam, because of the entry of sin into the world. What had remained in Adam was but a limited measure of the Holy Spirit then, just enough to enable the sinner to be responsive to what God would offer him for his salvation. The unrepentant sinner possesses that small measure of the Holy Spirit even in hell. That's what makes hell a hell painful and sorrowful. This is why we read in Psalms 139, verse 7, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? The psalmist asks. If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Hades, thou art there. So man cannot escape the reality of the spirit's omnipresence. He indeed is in all places, and he fills all things. Coming too close to God's presence can be a very uncomfortable experience for a person who is not prepared in advance with repentance and faith in God's forgiving grace. You will remember when Peter asked Jesus to leave uh, his fishing boat, upon discovering his divine power and holiness that became manifested in the miraculous catch of fish. Uh, we read in, uh, of this in Luke chapter 5, verse 8. Depart from me, Peter said to Jesus, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So hell is being prematurely close to the divine presence. Too close. Uh, before repentance and forgiveness, or when repentance and forgiveness come too late. It's too much too soon for the sinner. The early church fathers spoke of man's natural endowment of reason, of that reason that survived Adam's fall as their spermatic logos, or seminal reason. By this term, they meant a small measure of the Logos, 
or reason, rationality, originating like a ray of light from the perfect and absolute Logos, reason of God. That is the second person of the Trinity. God diffused the Logos and planted it in the world like rational seeds. In the same way we can say that all men, even before the redemption in Jesus Christ, possess the spermatic spirit, that is a seed form of the Holy Spirit, a spark or ray of the hypostatic spirit, the third person of the Trinity. It is this vestigial presence of the spirit that explains why even the sinner and unbeliever possesses the power of intelligence and a conscience. Despite his separation from God due to sin, he retains a small measure of that spirit-imparted light, however darkened and flickering it is in man's sinful state. In this regard, the Apostle Paul teaches that what the law requires is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or perhaps excuse them on that day when God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is in Romans chapter 2, verse 15. Adam's disobedience and separation from that initial infusion of the Holy Spirit makes it appear as if God's original plan to create man in his image and likeness had failed. But his counsel could not be frustrated indefinitely. God could not be defeated by Satan. God's program for man's creation and participation in his divine life was sooner or later to be fulfilled. His will for man to be a special abode of his Holy Spirit had to be realized. It was only God's infinite love and infinite wisdom that could conceive of a plan that would bring to realization his initial creative decree without violating his justice and righteousness that required the punishment of sin. Only in this way God was to reconcile man to himself and thus release his spirit to him without compromising his perfect holiness. It was in the person of his Son and Logos incarnate, Jesus Christ, that the penalty of sin was to be paid, that man was to be ransomed from the devil, and the Holy Spirit re-infused into man. The second person of the Trinity, through whom God created man, was the same divine person through whom God saved man. For all things were created through him. We are told in Holy Scripture. Jesus, born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, was the incarnate Son of God. He was true man and true God. While unchanging in his divine nature, in his manhood, he passed through all the stages of human growth, physically, mentally, and spiritually. The Holy Spirit that indwelt the Virgin Mary at the moment of the conception of Jesus remained in Jesus in all his fullness, since Jesus was conceived without sin. The angel Gabriel told Mary at the time of the Annunciation. I read from Luke, chapter 1, verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born of you will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus was sent by God to be a counterpart of Adam. He was the new Adam a progenitor of a new humanity who was to initiate a new beginning 
for a new race of men created in the image and likeness of God. Unlike the first Adam, Jesus remained obedient to the will of the Father. He was tempted in all things like the first Adam and uh, could have fallen, but uh, he resisted the temptations of Satan. Nothing hampered his growth in the Holy Spirit as a consequence of his obedience to God. We read in Luke chapter 1 verse 80 that the child grew and waxed strong in spirit. The spiritual growth of Jesus continued through his passion in death upon the cross. Scripture tells us that he learned obedience through what he suffered. In being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This is from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. The supreme testing of Jesus' obedience was on the night of his betrayal when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane to his Father, saying, and I read from Luke chapter 22, verse 42, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Thus, what the first Adam failed to achieve, Jesus had succeeded to do. Throughout his life, he remained submissive to the will of God, obedient unto death, indeed the death of the cross. And by virtue of that sacrificial obedience, the Father highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. But uh, at this point, I want to focus special attention on the baptism of Jesus, and I'd like to show what uh, its significance is in the process of his growth in the Holy Spirit. Just prior to the account of the baptism, we find the Gospel of Mark des describing the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, John foretells the coming of Jesus and uh, of his messianic uh, mission. John declares... And I read in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 8, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, when John baptized Jesus, uh, we read in Mark, in the same chapter, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. Thou art my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Something very tremendous happened at that moment. Jesus did not condescend to be baptized simply to set an example of humility, since he was sinless and had no need to be baptized. But rather, a great truth was dramatically being proclaimed at that time. The Holy Spirit that sin had banished from the life of Adam, now descends again. He descends for the first time since Adam's fall. And this is the extraordinary uh, thing about this event. 
the Holy Spirit who had been alienated from man because of his disobedience is re-infused into him. The Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove in order to manifest that the new Adam, Jesus, became filled with the Holy Spirit uh, in his 30th year. There at the Jordan River, he was anointed by the Father, uh, priest, prophet, and king through the Holy Spirit. He was also proclaimed by the Father as his son, primarily in his human nature, in whom I am pleased, the voice from heaven declared. Jesus pleased the Father with his life of obedience and self-denial uh, up to that stage of his life. As a result, uh, Jesus received in his human nature, of course, uh, the, the gift of sonship, which the first Adam did not succeed to attain. Now the descent of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove represented the culmination of Jesus' growth in the Holy Spirit. It represented the consummation of the growth of his human nature. In a word, Jesus as the new Adam became the man created in God's image and likeness. God's initial creative plan for man was finally fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Of course, in his divine nature, Jesus is from all eternity, the Son and Logos of God and the image of God. But now he became in the temporal sense in the image of God and the Son of God, that is, in terms of his human nature. Adam was not created by God as a son, but only with the potential of growing and earning the dignity of sonship. The interference of sin prevented Adam from attaining adoption as a son. Jesus as man, on the other hand, because of his obedience in sinless life, by receiving the fullness of the Holy Spirit, became the first son of God in the new humanity. And it's for this reason that he could call all those who received him as Savior, he could call them brothers. Because we are, we who become uh, Christians and disciples of Jesus, uh, we are all sons of God and thus brothers one with another. The new Adam represents the supreme end of human growth and development according to God's original plan. Jesus is man in all his perfection, his perfection having been made possible by receiving an uninterrupted infusion of the Holy Spirit from the time of his conception to the moment of his death. The baptism of Jesus in the Jordan does not usually receive the attention uh, that it should have on the part of Christian thinkers and theologians. It is ordinarily taken as an incidental, incidental occurrence in the life of Jesus and simply as an act of humility and self-abasement. But if we examine this happening more closely, we will discover that it was a kind of Pentecost before Pentecost. We have to remember that the Holy Spirit did not descend for the first time when he came down in the upper room and appeared in the midst of the 120 in the form of tongues of fire. The first descent of the Holy Spirit since Adam's fall took place at the Jordan River after Jesus was baptized by John the Forerunner. Being sinless and free from the curse of Adam, Jesus had free access to the Holy Spirit. There was no atoning death required in advance of his receiving the Holy Spirit and for his total fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Jesus became filled with the Holy Spirit, unlike the first Adam who never attained that divine fullness. The new Adam, Jesus, became the progenitor of a new humanity, of a new race of spirit-filled men. As the perfect image and truth of God, Jesus served as the answer to man's basic threefold need, his religious need, intellectual need, and political need. He is the high priest in religion, 
the Logos and Master in Science, and the King in Government. In these three fundamental spheres of human existence, Jesus supplies the key to fulfillment and individual and collective harmony and ultimate contentment. Please turn cassette tape over now for the completion of this message. But it is in the religious dimension of the experience of Jesus Christ that man recovers the required fullness of the Holy Spirit needed for implementing intellectual and uh, political or social truth. Now, when I speak of religion, I mean it in the narrow sense of the word. In its strict connotation, religion means expiation of sin through the offering of the most perfect gift to God for man's forgiveness. In this circle of human expression, Jesus Christ is believed and accepted as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world by offering his life as an atonement for man's transgression. Jesus was the only man who did not have to die because he was sinless and he was free from the penalty of sin. Yet he accepted to die and to take the guilt of sinful man to the cross as an expiation for sin. In that shedding of blood on Calvary, Jesus washed us from our sins and paid the ransom that we sinners might be set free. In dying, Jesus destroyed death and annihilated the devil who held the power of death over man. The sinner received the forgiveness of his sins by the grace of God manifested in the sacrifice of the cross. The sinner, by faith in the atoning death of Jesus, is acquitted from judgment. However, forgiveness is not the ultimate purpose of Christ's death on the cross. Forgiveness leads to a further and final objective. It makes possible the ultimate fulfillment of God's will for man. Christ's atoning death made it possible for the Father to release the Holy Spirit to man again. Man was created to be a vessel of God's Spirit, and it is the restoration of the Holy Spirit to man that completes the picture of man's reinstatement into God's fellowship and redemption. Jesus Christ satisfied all righteousness, as we read uh, in the Gospels, not only in the act of accepting baptism at the hands of John the Baptist, but also in his obedience and death upon the cross. Because he was obedient to the point of surrendering his own life, God highly exalted and glorified him at his ascension into heaven. There he sits in glory at the right hand of the Father as the great high priest. The Holy Spirit could not be poured out before Christ's ascension. This is why Jesus said, It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And I read from John chapter 16, verse 7. The evangelist John enunciates the same truth when he states, and I read in John 7, verse 39, Now this he said about the Spirit which those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Consequently, I want to say again that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, and forgiveness came with the vicarious death of Jesus on the cross. Receiving Jesus as Redeemer and Savior into our lives by faith and repentance brings forgiveness of sins. But the ultimate purpose of the atoning death of Jesus Christ goes beyond forgiveness. Forgiveness is not an end in itself. It is a means to an end. It is the presupposition to receiving the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness restores man to the sinlessness of Adam prior to the fall. This is bringing us back to the beginning of the whole process of creation. It is a sinless state, but God created man to become perfect and not merely to remain in a sinless state. For even a newborn baby might be very well innocent and sinless, especially after baptism, but it is in an imperfect state. 
Innocence and sinlessness is not to be confused with perfection. Even Jesus was born sinless and innocent, but he had to pass through the progressive stages of growth in order to be perfected in his uh, human nature. When the believing and repenting sinner is washed of his sins in the regeneration of holy baptism, he essentially enters into a state in which Adam existed before his fall. This is the effectual working of baptism in water. He is sinless with a minimum measure of the Holy Spirit. It is by the second baptism, however, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, that the regenerated believer receives what the Church Fathers call the a supplementary and perfecting spirit. spirit. Uh, it is the divine infusion that supplements the minimal measure of the spirit in the baptized believer and comes as the necessary provision that enables him to spiritually increase and progress from glory to glory until he attains the image and likeness of God. We read in John chapter 3, verse 34, A God giveth not the spirit by measure. The Holy Spirit becomes within the believer a spring of water welling up into everlasting life and rivers of living water. This is the unfailing promise of our Lord. In receiving the seal of the Holy Spirit in that second baptism, the believer does not receive something that is uh, extraneous to his basic nature or something he was totally deprived of formerly. I already pointed out that Adam's fall did not separate man entirely from the Holy Spirit. It is only logical to, to believe that the Holy Spirit remains in man as the source of life and intelligence, however inadequate it is for man's perfection in final self-fulfillment. The new infilling with the Holy Spirit is superadded to the spermatic spirit or the vest vestigial spirit, the remnant of the Holy Spirit after Adam's fall, in the same way that Jesus Christ, as the incarnate Logos, unites with the spermatic Logos in the believer and gives the Spirit. When we speak of the Holy Spirit being given to the believer, we should not view this divine gift as an adventitious entity superimposed on man's basic personality structure. It is not man's contact, first contact with the Holy Spirit. In the experience of rebirth, the repenting believer receives the renewal of that spirit infusion that was initially received at the moment of creation. It marks the continuation of God's creative act. Atonement and expiation of sin in Jesus Christ enables man to become receptive again of the Holy Spirit. Water baptism impresses this receptivity upon the soul. In the second baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is given by God in answer to request for the divine gift, the divine Logos, who in the beginning breathed the Spirit into, Adam's, into Adam, infuses the same Spirit into his disciples uh, in the upper room when he said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. And he breathed into his disciples. The Church Fathers generally viewed this post-resurrection infusion as a repetition of the first infusion. This is a second in breathing, teaches Saint Cyril of Jerusalem of the fourth century, because the first infusion was darkened by voluntary sins. And I quote from his Catechetical Discourse, chapter 17. Saint Basil, the great of the same century, also teaches that Christ's in breathing upon the disciples marks the restoration of the first infusion and that the Logos, who initially infused the Spirit into Adam as the creative agent of God, now in breathes him again as the baptizer. I want to point out that the anointing 
which is received in the baptism of the Spirit is only the beginning of that wonderful newness of life in the Holy Spirit. It marks a threshold experience, a doorway that leads into a life of continuous spirit in fillings. This makes the Christian life a life of constant growth in the image and likeness of God. Unfortunately, the understanding of the Holy Spirit that prevails in the church today is a static one. Yet it is extremely important to remember that the anointing with the holy chrism marks only the beginning of the life in the spirit of, and I say this primarily for Orthodox believers. Both private prayer and the Holy Eucharist should be turned to as an indispensable means of increasing the measure of the spirit within us. Contenting oneself with a blessing of chrismation, the chrisma, which besides took place back in infancy, is to remain at the very initial stage of rebirth and it's to doom oneself to spiritual retardation. We should not be under any illusion that the spirit life is a static one. The spirit cannot be bound. He cannot be prevented from leaving when he is not wanted or when personal sin banishes him. He respects the freedom of the will and will take his abode only in the vessel that seeks and welcomes him. We can thank God that there is a growing number of persons in the Orthodox Church today receiving the infilling of the Holy Spirit even with the evidence of speaking in tongues. This means that definitely the charismatic renewal has ignited the flame of awakening in our own church and that the Spirit has already touched the lives of many Orthodox in the most extraordinary way. But what is disturbing is how the accounts that are given of these so-called baptisms in the Holy Spirit are taken by some well-intentioned persons as a challenge to their own spiritual, in, uh, uh, spiritual adequacy. You can hear some of them react defensively as they say uh, what sounds probably like this. I think I've always had the Holy Spirit. I was baptized and I believe in Christ. Very likely they are correct, but what should be remembered is that we can never receive enough of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul teaches that as vessels of the Spirit, we must strive to be filled to overflowing. He says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. No one really has the right to claim he is a believer in Christ if he does not thirst and drink continually from the spiritual water that he gives. If it is true that he who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, Romans 8, verse 9, then it behooves us never to stop seeking a greater infilling. To attain the stature of the measure of the fullness of Christ is to gain the fullness of the Holy Spirit, which he attained in the growth of his human nature. There is no point in the life of the Spirit where we can sit back contented that we have finished our spiritual growth. The spirit life is an ongoing process of always receiving what the Holy Spirit is always giving, since it is not by measure that he gives the spirit, John 3:34. Then, by the same token, it is not by measure that we should expect to receive. It is not a clear-cut distinction of either I have the spirit or I don't have the spirit. It is not so simple as all that. The Father pours out his love abundantly into our hearts, in the bestowal of the Spirit, in the response of our faith, that divine abundance is ours just for the asking. How can anyone ever claim that he has received enough from the Lord and needs nothing further from him? The child of God wants everything his Father has to give him. Besides, it is the only way he can grow into his image and likeness. It is the way Jesus attained that end and became the new Adam and progenitor of a new humanity. Jesus 
likened the Spirit to water because the Spirit is God's presence that fills every notch and cranny of our being. It is fluid, as it were, because it is mobile, active and moving, like the wind that moves when it blows, and you do not know where it begins and where it goes. The Spirit is the dynamic presence of God that comes and goes according to each person's receptivity. The Holy Spirit is not like standing well water. He is more like the water that gushes out of an artesian well. Jesus said, The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. John 4, 14. The love and grace of God is boundless. Whatever he gives, he gives in an overflowing measure. He gives his children of his spirit in all abundance. So, my friend, don't stop with what you have received from God. There is more and more and more. I came that they may have life, said Jesus, and have it abundantly. Don't content yourself with a measure of the Holy Spirit you have received thus far. Seek the fullness of the Spirit. Be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. Too many in the church today cheat themselves of the vast joy and lasting peace that comes with the fullness of the Spirit. The result is always spiritual mediocrity and frigidity in the church. The spiritual temperature falls so low that anyone seen brimming with excitement over Jesus Christ is thought of as having a fever. Why content oneself with a minimum when God wants to give us the maximum according to his good pleasure? Why do we distrust enthusiasm in our religious life? St. Paul admonishes, never flag in zeal. Be a glow in the spirit. Romans 12:11. Some objections have been raised to the idea of receiving a baptism of the spirit, as if it were not an orthodox concept at all, or that orthodox supposedly receive the spirit baptism once at the time they are anointed with a holy chrism and that a second one cannot be received, neither should it be sought after. But chrismation not only can be followed by subsequent infillings of the Holy Spirit, but should be followed by such infillings. St. Paul did not say remain filled with the Holy Spirit, as if the Spirit fullness could be a static state of the soul. Rather, he urged, be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. The original Greek can also be rendered as fill yourselves with the Holy Spirit. The verb fill yourselves, is progressive, which indicates continuous action. In the Orthodox Church, we say the prayer to the Holy Spirit, O Heavenly King, the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth. We say this prayer at the beginning of every private and corporate prayer, and of course each time we call upon the Comforter to fill us. Come and dwell within us. Certainly this most common prayer of the Church indicates that we must constantly ask God to refill our souls with His Spirit. In other words, we can never receive enough of the Holy Spirit. And let me remind those who object also the purpose of the Eucharist. At the moment of the consecration of the gifts, the priest prays that to those who shall partake of these, they may be unto the fellowship of thy Holy Spirit. Just prior to the Lord's Prayer, he prays again that the holy gifts may be received under the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And there are similar illustrations in the preparatory communion prayers. But one of the final hymns of the Divine Liturgy demonstrates beyond the shadow of a doubt that the Holy Spirit is to be received continually throughout our lifetime. We sing that, that final hymn at the liturgy. We have seen the true light. We have received the heavenly spirit. We have found the true faith. Certainly the believer in attendance at the liturgy has neither seen the light which is Christ for the first time, nor has he received the Holy Spirit for the first time. In the Acts of the Apostles, we have evidence that shows that in apostolic times, Christians received repeated infillings. The expression filled with the Holy Spirit is used in reference to those who are already known to have received the initial baptism in the Holy Spirit. Even Peter is said 
to be filled with the Holy Spirit when he arose to address the Sanhedrin, although we know, of course, that he had been filled on the day of Pentecost. When Peter was released, the believers received him in joy, and I read from Acts 4.31, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Obviously, this was not their first baptism in the Holy Spirit. Consequently, it is not only normal, but absolutely necessary and normative for a regenerated child of God to seek repeatedly the infilling of the Holy Spirit in his walk with Jesus Christ. Why, then, should some people, in the name supposedly of orthodoxy, object to orthodox believers gathering together in a prayer meeting and asking the Father to send down his Holy Spirit and fill those who are present? All they are saying is essentially, come and dwell within us. This request comes from an established orthodox prayer, which represents a most orthodox petition, because each orthodox Christian needs repeated infillings if he is to grow in the image and likeness of God. He is entitled to repeated infillings for his own personal edification and also for the building up of the body of Christ, the Church. So, my friend, seek and drink deeply of the Spirit of God from the Eucharistic table of the Divine Liturgy. But between communions, continue in private and extra-liturgical gatherings to ask of the Father to give you the Spirit. Ask, and it will be given you, promises our Lord Jesus Christ. And I read in Luke 11:13, If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. And ask we do, and we shall continue to do both at the altar of the Eucharist and apart from the altar. Wherever it may be, we, are, we seek and we pray as members of His body, the Orthodox, Catholic, and Apostolic Church.